This morning we have a passage from the Old Testament from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Uh-uh. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one more passage. Let's turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. And I want to read to you verses 12 through 13. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Um, you know, glad to be back. We had a, we had a, a big ride on the way there and back, but I'm, I'm glad not to be sitting in the car. <laughs> um, as we think about this passage of Scripture today, I read a story about a Cecropia moth. I don't know. Do y'all know what a Cecropia moth is? Does anybody know what a Cecropia moth is? It's a big moth. 
If you've ever seen one, they're really big. You'll never forget it. They're either green or brown. They're huge. They look like birds. They're big. And so the story goes like this. A little boy found a cecropia moth, and the moth was seeking, trying so hard, struggling to get out of that cocoon, right? All the butterflies and moths, they come out of cocoons. And so he's trying really hard to get out of that prison. He's working really hard against getting out of that little cocoon and a little boy sees this happening and he goes over and he pulls the cocoon apart so that the moth can fall on out and so then a few hours later the little boy notices that the moth dies do y'all know why the moth died some people know why the moth died you see the moth needs to struggle against the cocoon to live as that moth struggles, the wings, the, the blood in that little body is being pushed out into those wings so that those wings firm up, stiffen up so that, that that sucker can fly. So he can move and fly and go about his own, you know, moth business, if you will. He needs the struggle. He needs to pre- the pressure and the, the suffering. You know, I used to teach stress management in the hospital and Where there's no stress, there's death. Did you know that? The absence of stress is death. Everybody right now sitting in this room has some level of stress or you would be dead. (laughs) Where there's no stress, where there's no suffering, there's no life. And the same is true in the church where there's no struggle. There's no personal growth. And where the church doesn't struggle and suffer and go through difficulties, there's no Growth. This is not the church growth technique that you would find in a book. And you know, one of the things we used to talk about in California is we had uh, this, this room was really only supposed to hold 40, and we were getting 100 people in it. Sometimes we, one time we had 146 in it. Of course, we're breaking every rule in the book, right? And I used to tell the men, one of the things about church growth is once you get to 60% of the, of the building's capacity, People tend to not keep coming. That's just sort of a fact, you know. But that's, that's, that's what's in a church growth book. What's in the Bible is struggle, suffering. How do you advance the church? How does the church progress? The church is progressing in our text because the Apostle Paul is not outside a prison, but he's in the prison. He's in the prison. And God is using that to grow the church. In his chains, he's been divinely appointed to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and he's in prison, and this is the technique that God uses to increase the number of people in the church. So we see him, God growing the church with uh, advancing in two ways, inside the prison and outside the prison. Remember we said a few weeks ago that Paul's in the prison, and he sees himself as someone who's there, For his emperor, Jesus Christ, he is chained to two men. Every four to six hours, they change. Remember, these are the best of the best guards. These are the best of Navy SEALs. This is SEAL Team 6. Every one of these guys are attached to him. And he sees himself there for Jesus to bring them safely into heaven. They see themselves placed there for their emperor to bring him safely into Nero's presence. Two different ways to look at it. And all of these guys are with him. He sees himself himself put there 
for them. And he shares the gospel with them, and the gospel begins to go forth in these hearts of these men. Not only that, we're told inside the palace. In fact, it says their praetorian guard, it says the whole praetorian guard, in my little footnote says the governor's palace. Everyone else, that refers to the palace staff. And in fact, if you look over in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, listen to this verse. All the saints greet you. Now remember, he's writing from this prison in Rome to the Philippians, and then he says this, especially those of Caesar's household. Oh my. Don't you know that just made Caesar sick to his stomach? I got a guy who's converting all my, my, my soldiers. I've got a guy my staff are being affected by. I've got members of my own household being affected by this guy. And then there's outside the prison, the gospel's advancing. Those brothers in the Lord who are there on 1st Street in uh, Rome and on 10th Street in Rome, those ministers in all those different churches in Rome are beginning to preach more boldly and fearlessly for Jesus Christ because they see him doing it on the inside. They're free. They're not chained. They can do it on the outside. See, if you leave this apostle out of prison, if he's outside the prison, he turns the world upside down. He goes from one town to the next, preaching to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, and he turns the world upside down if he's not chained. And if he is chained, he continues to turn the world upside down from the inside out. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, and that brings us, and here we, you know, you know sometimes I, I, when, as I was learning to preach, I learned that I could do what I'm about to do, so I'm about to do it. Um, I'm not even going to get to a point, and I'm just going to say to you, here's some application, okay? What are you doing in your circumstances? What are you doing in your sufferings? What are you doing in your chains? Every one of us, at, we could all look at this and go, you know, I'm chained to something, Right? Maybe you're chained to an office at home. Maybe you're chained to certain situations. What am I doing in my chained situation? What am I doing? So there's so many ways to look at this. You know, in that situation, and you realize you're in it, and the first thing we can do is sort of moan and groan. And, you know, I think God gives us a little bit of room to moan and groan about it. He's not an unreal God. He knows that we moan and we groan. But as we moan and we groan, we moan and we groan ourselves back into the will of God. We moan and we groan and we do. We say, Lord, save me. We say, Lord, help me with my attitude in these chains, in this situation. We say, Lord, I want to glorify you and enjoy you in these chains, whatever those chains are. We say, Lord, you know, help me to take your word and, and whatever, wherever I'm at. And folks, I said this to you before, but I had to learn this in the gym. I did not. I've had, I used to have those guys in California would say, well, you, I guess you really missed the gym. I guess you really missed training. Not at all. Never wanted to do that. Was I good at it? I was good at it. How'd you make it? Well, you know what I did? I thought about God while I was in the gym. <laughs> and I uh, told people about my wife when I was in the gym. I was trained train a bunch of women. I told every woman that I trained about my wife. I told every woman about my son. My th- my three. I got three daughters. I used to have wear that T-shirt that says, I'm not afraid of anything. I got three daughters. I told them about God. I told them about what I was doing. I told them about all the things that were going on. I wasn't afraid to say stuff about Jesus. It's hard. The circumstances are not fun. 
What am I doing with my circumstances? Well, God is using Paul's imprisonment to advance the gospel. And now look at verse 14. It's real interesting. Look at what it says there. And that most of the brethren. How many? Most. (laughs) Most of the brethren... Trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak of the word of God without fear. Some to be sure are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. Most are serving and preaching Christ with true motives, but some are not. So we have a division here between two kinds of preachers. We have preachers who are preaching with true motives. We have preachers who are preaching with false motives. Some from goodwill, some from love, some from envy, selfish ambition, and all the rest. And then he ends, and we're going to look at this at the very end. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this he rejoices. So there's two types of preachers. There's two different classes of preachers. There's those who preach with true motives, those who preach with false motives. Now let's look at these preachers for a second. What's the method of the preachers? What's the method of the true preachers, the true motives, and the false motive, the preachers with worthy or unworthy motives? What's the the method? And Paul tells us they speak the word of God in verse 14. He says they preach Christ in verse 15. He says Christ is proclaimed in verse 17, and Christ is proclaimed in verse 18. What's the method of the preachers? They're all preaching. The method is preaching. That's the method. The word preach here means herald. And heralding, that's what uh, Mr. Seben came up here and read Isaiah 40. And they were heralding the truth. They were heralding a truth. One evangelist would herald from Mount Sinai. And another evangelist would herald uh, to Jerusalem as he lifted up his voice to the towns of Judah. This is what goes on in ancient times. We, you know, today, how many... Something happens over in Uganda, what happens? We can know it today in a minute. That's not how it worked back in those days. Back in those days, there would be a guy who would come to a town, and they would call him sometimes the town crier or the town herald. He would stand on the street corner, and he would cry out with a loud voice telling everybody the news. Sometimes he'd go to the king first, then he would go out on the street corner and declare the news to every single person that was out there. In Habakkuk chapter 2, the revelation of God was to be written down, Habakkuk was told. And he was to write it on tablets and go into town and make sure everybody heard him read it out loud or read it for themselves. These are heralds, heralds preaching and teaching. And John the Baptist was a herald. And Jesus was a herald. And Peter and Paul, they were all proclaimers. The method for the preachers with true motives and false motives. The method was preaching. This is God's method. Sometimes we want to maybe get rid of that method, don't we? We want to... What do we do sometimes on Super Bowl Sundays? Does does the order of service from the Scripture say to have a big TV screen and watch a football game in the place of God's Word being preached? No. We're not to go and have eight to ten minute discussions. We're not to have discussions. We're to have the preaching of God's word. This is God's method. Men are to be called. Men are to be trained. Men are to be educated. Men are not to do skits. Men are to stand up and preach God's word. They're to preach it before God. They're to preach it before men. They're to preach it in season. Out of season, they're to preach God's word. 
Not skits, not movies, but preaching. This is how God says that he works. All of these ministers, all of these preachers, false motives and true motives, they're all using the right method. Second, what's the message? What's the message of the preachers? Well, did you see what it said there? Christ is being preached. The method is preaching. The message is Christ. All of the preachers are preaching Christ. This is good. This is really good. This is why he's rejoicing at the end. They are not preaching a false message. They're not preaching a wrong message. They're not preaching, as Paul would say in Galatians, another gospel or another message. Paul is absolutely intolerant of another message or another gospel. If you add to faith in Jesus Christ any law, he will come after you. He will come after you and condemn you. <laughs> That's what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1.8. If an angel comes to you and he preaches to you something other than faith in Christ alone for your salvation, let that angel, let that messenger, let that preacher be anathema. You can't say anything harder than that. Let that pe- preacher be eternally condemned to hell. Galatians 5, 1 through 6 says, if you add circumcision, there were, there were uh, Judaizers who wanted to add to, the faith, to faith in Christ just circumcision, just circumcision. Faith in Jesus Christ plus circumcision. Paul says, if you do that, you're not in grace anymore. You see, you're either in grace or you're under the law. If you put any, add anything to faith in Jesus Christ, You have to add, Paul would say, all the works of the law. If you add one, you have to add them all. And then you have to keep them all to be saved. Or to be saved, you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone and Christ does all the works for you. We will be saved by works. Just whose will we be saved by? We can only be saved by Christ's works. Faith in Christ alone. And if you go over here and add circumcision or any, any, you have to add them all, and you have to keep them all. And I love what our children's catechism says. It says this, No mere man since the fall of Adam ever did or ever could or did keep the commandments of God perfectly. Not one of us. So if we try to keep the law, well, we're in trouble. So the method is preaching. And the message is Christ. And Paul right or... Uh, Luke writes in Acts 4.12, There's salvation in no one else. This is probably Peter saying this. For there's no other name that has been given given under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know, I heard Paul Washer say this one time, and I thought, man, that's a really great way to put that. What are we saved from? Now, a lot of us would say, saved from the wrath of God. Well, you know what Paul Washer said? He said, you're being saved from God. Yes, from the wrath of God, but you're being saved from God. We've sinned against God, and God's wrath is against us for our sins. We're fallen in Adam, and as Adam sinned, he was guilty, and his guilt was imputed to us, but also we have conveyed from him by ordinary generation a sin nature that's corrupt, and it makes us enemies of God. And a day is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to destroy all those who resist Jesus Christ. Who continue to be hostile to Jesus Christ and to His people. A day of justice is coming. And it will be terrible 
for those who do not believe in Jesus. But today there's this news. There's this news that's being heralded. And God is conquering His enemies in an interesting way. What He does is He says, You put your faith in My Son Jesus and you're not united to Him. And where He's condemned on the cross, you're condemned along with Him. And your sins are judged along with Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus is buried, you're buried with Him. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, you're raised up with Him to live a new kind of life because you're one with Him by faith. This is the surprising uh, salvation that comes to us through the gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves, have my sins been condemned on the cross? Have I been executed in Jesus Christ on the cross? Have I been raised up to walk in a new way of living in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? There's coming a day when the consummation happens and we'll be brand new, all fit for heaven. But right now, are you ready to meet or ready for that day? The message is this conquest, and every minister must preach, be reconciled to God. All your sins can be imputed to Christ. All His righteousness is imputed to you, and you walk before God blameless and assured that your sins are forgiven. I love to. I love our assurance of pardon. I love it. I love it. I love to know that my sins are forgiven. I was telling somebody the other day that um, how many times you have, let me, this is just an aside, but don't, don't you guys have times where you sit and talk to people and they tell you about their sins and you can say, you know, the Bible says that God forgives you. You ever had to say that to your children? You ever say that to your wife? You ever say that to your husband? Did you know that God forgives you? I was saying that to a guy the other day. <laughs> Did you know that God forgives that? It all happens through the blood of Jesus. This is the message. Well, let's look at the motives of the preachers. We looked at the method. We looked at the message. Let's look at the motives. This is where we see the difference take place, the false motives and the true motives. And in order to understand the motives, we have to step back and think about what's going on in Rome. You need to think about the fact that before Paul shows up in Rome, there were churches that were there. And remember, Paul writes his, his biggest letter to the church in Rome. Romans is the big letter. It's not four chapters like Ephesians, or six chapters of Ephesians and four chapters of Philippians and four chapters of Colossians, but there's 16 chapters in Romans. And most of the church there is made up of Gentiles, some Jews, but not just, not, but mainly Gentiles. And when he arrives, Uh, He preaches the gospel to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles, and the churches are growing there in Rome. Now, I want you to think about there's pastors in Rome, and let's just kind of make up a story here. There's a pastor on 1st Street in Rome, and there's maybe a pastor on 10th Street in Rome, and these pastors know each other, and, you know, maybe, maybe you go to 1st Street, and your friend goes to 10th Street Church in Rome, and Y'all say, hey, hey, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday morning? And I go to church with you on Sunday night, and I'll listen to your preacher, and you listen to my preacher, and we'll rejoice that we have ministers who love us, and we'll rejoice that ministers preach the gospel to us. And this is life, right? Well, then into this mix comes this guy, this Jewish guy who comes, gets out of a boat, and they bring him to Rome, and he's going to have to wait for a verdict from the Roman Caesar. And there he is in prison. His name is the Apostle Paul, and they all know who he is. 
Now, the, now, history tells us Paul was not an impressive person. He was short. History tells us he was short. He was stocky. And I, I'm going to say this, um, quoting this. He had a unibrow. <laughs> that just makes kids sick. Oh, man, you mean he didn't, he didn't get, get the, you know, make it look better? You know how everybody's so concerned about their uh, eyebrows. And so history tells us he was not easy to look at. But here is a man commissioned by Jesus Christ. And he enters into the city, not to this overwhelming applause, but he goes to a prison. But this is a person who second to none has a grasp on the gospel. This is a person who's sitting there talking to the elite guards and they are becoming Christians. This is a person who can witness and talk about the Bible like nobody ever saw before. Three years he's in Ephesus preaching for three solid years. Some people think, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson said he thinks he preached 40,000 sermons there. Unbelievable. He never stops. He is in a chain and he is preaching and his fame is going forward. And guess whose fame is getting cut into? Preacher on 1st Street, preacher on 10th Street. It's kind of got, these guys have reputations. These guys have some, you know, notoriety and... What happens when somebody steps in and some of your well-knownness goes away? (laughs) Some of your fame diminishes? Well, you only can have two responses. You can either envy the preacher, Paul, or you can love him. You can either preach from false motives or true motives. And he says this, some preach Christ from false motives. That's in verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy. Now, envy is a green-eyed monster. You know, envy. When I, you know what envy is, green-eyed monster. I see that you have something, and this. And many people think envy is. I see that you have something, and I want what you have, and I kind of, kind of grudge. Uh, I'm begrudging the fact that you have it, and I don't. That's not what envy is. Envy's worse than that. Envy says, "I see what you have." And I don't really care whether I have it or not. In fact, I may have ten of them. But I see what you have, and I don't want you to have it, so I want to deprive you of it. Now, that's really kind of abstract. But let's talk about that for a second. Let's say I'm a child. I see that you have a toy. I see that you enjoy that toy. So what I want to do is I want to, I don't need that toy. I may have ten of those toys. But I see that you have it. I see that you enjoy it. And so I want to take it away from you. Or maybe I want to break it. I want to deprive you of it. And that's what's going on here. Here, these men see Paul has a good name. And they want to take that good name away from him. Maybe subtly, maybe blatantly, they want to take him down a notch. It says here, not only from envy, but it says from strife. And strife is competition. Let's just say, okay, Preacher Mark, he has some good, good uh, outlines, right? We were talking about outlines in my family last night. We are talking about outlines, and outlines are good. Maybe preacher on tent, maybe Paul's got better outlines. And so I got to go, maybe I'm at night, I'm straining to get better outlines so I can outdo Paul. There's competition going on. And then he says there's selfish ambition. And selfish ambition means I'm going to put myself first. And these guys are preaching the gospel, but they're also preaching themselves. They're doing things to make themselves look better. And maybe putting Paul down a little bit. There's this impure, number four, there's impure motives or insincerity here. And ultimately, Paul says this, they want to cause me distress in my imprisonment. 
And it's interesting, the word distress, it means that, you know, he's got chains on his wrist and his ankles. And chains cause irritation. When you move around, there's irritation. We all know what that is. And these guys, instead of preaching from goodwill and love and alleviating the irritation, these guys want to increase the distress. They want to increase the irritation. So that's the false motives, the guys that preach from false motives. Others preach Christ from true motives, the goodwill and the love. And these preachers are begrudging, not begrudging the Apostle Paul, but they're glad to be a part of the whole thing. And they're glad that he's there. They're glad that he's going forward in the prison, in the palace, even in Nero's household. And they're glad to be a part of this. In fact, they love him. They cherish their relationship with him. And they're joining with him. And they will do what he can't do outside because he's on the inside. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn from preachers with false motives? Well, I'm, I ask myself this question. Were these men Christians? <laughs> and the answer is, it depends, doesn't it? If false motives... If envy and rivalry and selfish ambition and impurity or insincerity prevail over their hearts, if, they're, if they are overwhelmed and overmastered by the sin of putting him down, we would say that they're not Christians. If they're controlled by this desire, then they're not Christians. And there's plenty of preachers today, folks, who preach according to the right method. And they preach the right message who don't know the Christ that they preach. Now your, your, your OPC does everything in its power to make sure that the man standing behind the pulpit knows the Jesus that he preaches. They do everything they can. But there's plenty of preachers out in the world today who don't know the Jesus that they preach. Now let's think about applying this to ourselves. Sin is a reality. And if sin reigns over you, Romans 6, if sin rules over you, if envy rules you and competition rules you and Christ never, the, the Spirit of God never breaks in on you and says, stop that, if sin rules over you, then you're not a Christian. Christians are not ruled over by sin but by Jesus Christ. And so if I'm here today and I'm worshiping today only to appease another person, my husband or my wife, if I'm here to stay tight with the right group of people but not to worship Jesus Christ, I have to ask myself, am I a Christian? The Bible tells us in Galatians 5.19 that the person, the works of the flesh are, guess, listen, envy. There it is, envy. They preach out of envy. Jealousy. Selfish ambition, these are the works of the flesh. In 1 Kings chapter 1, Adonijah, uh, it was King's, King David's fourth son. He, he was a handsome man. And this is what he said. He said, I will be king. No, Solomon was supposed to be king. And Adonijah says, I will be king. I'll put him to death. I will be king. Absalom does even worse than that. Absalom earlier says... <laughs> 
I'll put my dad to death in order to be king. I will steal the hearts of Israel away from daddy, and I will put him to death, and I will be king. And Diotrephes says this, I love being first. That's what everybody's doing. Is this what governs me? All of these men are associated with Jesus Christ. All of them are associated with the church. And yet, they're wrong. They want to trample the Christ that they have on their lips, in their hearts. These preachers press us to think about sin. Does sin reign over me? Envy, competition, selfish ambition, and insincerity. Do I have a false Christianity? But some of these preachers who are preaching with false motives may have been Christians. Think about it. Here I am, I'm on First Street, and I see Paul, and I see his fame going up and mine going down, and maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't put my sin to death. Maybe I got a little envious. And maybe I began to speak and say some things about him that I shouldn't have. Have we never all, all I mean, any, every preacher is tempted to do that, do that every, every week. <laughs> every preacher is tempted to do that every week. If I say anything about any, any guy who's, preaching some heretical thing, I might say his name, but I'm going to say it real carefully. I'm, I wouldn't want you to hate the guy. I mean, there's a guy out there that says you can have your best life now, right? I don't want you to hate the guy. Every minister is tempted, and every single individual in this room is tempted to use the truth they know to do harm to somebody. We're all tempted to do this. Christians struggle with... Seeking to put somebody down. We have the truth about a selfless Christ, and yet sometimes we're selfish. And we shouldn't do that. Christ teaches us through the Apostle Paul to put off envy, put off rivalry and selfish ambition and insincerity. Well, let's finish. Let's look at the Apostle's response. Look at verse 18. What then? Do I go nuclear on these guys? <laughs> now, what then? What do I do? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense, the false, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. You know, one of the things that you, you learn when you go through preaching classes, you, I remember man, I was on the video camera, and I was shaking to death. It was my first sermon in front of about 20 guys, and they're all evaluating everything you do, every word you say. And I was sitting there, and one of the things I realized when I watched myself on the video camera is that nobody knew how nervous I was. You with me? I did. But on the video camera, you can't see the nervousness. And Paul is saying, you know what? These guys are preaching Christ, and people are hearing Christ, and they may not know the motivation sometimes, but they're hearing the message. That's why he's rejoicing. How is it that we can have or that he can act this way. And I think, I'll give you three quick points. He has the mind of Christ, and we learn that from chapter 2, the mind of Christ. He teaches you and he teaches me through Philippians chapter 2. You can read this later. He teaches us to have a humble opinion of ourselves. We have to have a humble opinion of ourselves. And then he teaches us that we should have better opinions of others. You know, I see a brother and I see that person. That person needs some manners, adjustments. 
<laughs> and that person needs to have some, you know, needs to articulate that in a different way. And this person has a bad temper, and this person needs some help here because they don't keep their word the way they should, and they're a little bit unkind. And I see all those things, but you know, Paul says these guys preached out of envy, but he also found something good to say. So he teaches us in Philippians 2 to have a better opinion of others. And so here we are, we're with people. And I remember a lady, she came to me and she says, look at those guys over there. This is my atheist lady. She says, look at those people over there. Look how they're acting. Those are supposed to be Christians. I said, well, you should have seen how they were acting last year. What are you getting at? I'm going, God's working in their lives. (laughs) Yeah, they got some bad manners. (laughs) And they need to improve here and there. And I'm telling a non-Christian, but you should have saw them last year. (laughs) This is how we have a better opinion of others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's people around us who don't say, don't do, don't act the way they should. But they're worshiping, and they're with us, and they're coming, they're, they're trying to be our friends. Well, finally, he teaches us to have the mind of Christ. And what kind of mind did Christ have toward you? He had a better opinion of you than he should have. <laughs> wow, Jesus had a better opinion of me than he should have. He should never have come to the cross and died for me because I know who I am. But he had a better opinion of us than he should have. And this is the kind of mind we need to put on. We need to study him. He's humble. He's gentle. He's lowly in heart. And we are taught by Jesus to put the interests of others before our own. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us in your word that... Your method of preaching of method is, is, is preaching. The message is Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us as we have to do with our families today. We would do all our talking out of goodwill and out of love. We pray for our preacher that he would preach with goodwill and love and be glad for other ministers who are so much far better than him that they would preach the gospel and that you would grant the increase. Lord, we pray that you will teach us to walk in devotion to Jesus according to all the commandments, that we would be mastered by him and ruled by him and live a a godly and a holy life, Lord, all the days of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.